Uh, a couple months ago, I spoke with Ben about potentially going back into 1 Peter and looking at a couple verses uh, in a little more detail. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. So if you would turn there. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Being a young man, um, the internet has been a monumental influence in my life, for good and for bad. Um, we live in a day and age where you can't really get away from what's on the internet because it's either on TV or it's in the podcast that we listen to or you hear it from somebody else. Um, and praise God that through the internet, God has led us to Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, without the internet and using it as a tool, we would not be here and we would not know about Sovereign Grace Church. And much less than that would we know biblical doctrine. Um, at a time in which we were starving for the truth, um, the Lord led us to a well of spiritual truth, first on the internet. And the Lord led us from there to find a biblical church and our family as a whole. Um, and because of that, and because I'm on the internet, I can worship the Lord that that is no longer the primary means that I find spiritual truth. The primary means nowadays is here at Sovereign Grace Church. And everything I hear online has become supplemental or help to me throughout the week and as I drive and as I work, affirming what I learn here and spurring me to continue in the truths that I learn not only from the preaching, but through the wisdom of older brothers here. Um, and, and I'm very grateful, and I'm sure that many of you could say the same. Uh, because I'm still on the internet, however, I see a lot of issues. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure several issues that you all are aware of and concerned about, um, particularly relating to the last several years of what's been going on in evangelicalism. Um, and to spare you the detail, there's a lot of mess on the internet. Um, but aside from that, um, something recently has been troubling me more than the mess on the internet. Because I'm not talking today about CRT, critical race theory. I'm not talking about those on the so-called left of evangelicalism. Um, who are pushing an agenda they would have spoken out against 10 years ago. Um, that's not really what's troubling me. Ministries that we're fond of, and by association, because we're influenced by what we hear, churches like ours, and our church, is what I'm concerned about. Relevant and doctrinally faithful ministries the ones that we would hear and give a hearty amen to. Because the risk is that if we are influenced by those things, if they're distracted, we also run the risk of being distracted. And so this morning I'm not accusing us of anything, um, but I am posing a question and I am exhorting us all to take spiritual inventory as we live in the times that we do. And so in everything that I preach today, I, I'm aware that we are a faithful church, that we love the Lord and we're following the Lord as best we can. But while I'm preaching, I, I want us all to be under the authority of God's word ourselves as individuals. So how do we compare to this standard? How are we doing as a local church and how obedient are we? Because it seems today that the true church is reforming as it always has been. The true church is being raised up. 
And if you think about it like a Jenga tower, I know it's a silly analogy, but you can rearrange as many blocks as you want to, except for the weight-bearing blocks. And if you pull those out, the whole tower is susceptible to collapse. And today, our tower, so to speak, Reformed theology, those who love Reformed doctrine, our tower is growing at a very rapid rate. And for many older men, um, they've never seen so many people coming to Reformed doctrine as they have in our day. And so the people of God are excited. They're stirred with the truth. And many leaders have been raised up to lead that charge. And so I believe that we're living in special times. But many of these young men and many of these ministries that we're fond of and by influence, us, run the risk of being distracted by all of the mess on the internet. Because many of these ministries, it seems, have focused a lot of their energy on correcting false doctrine and raising their voice, particularly against the unbelieving world concerning political issues. And in the context of the local church, false doctrine has to be refuted. That's a qualification to be an elder, is to be able and willing to refute those who contradict. And in such a public time as we live, there are many who speak publicly, who influence us throughout the week. And so that qualification, more than ever, is needed now. The unbelieving world needs to be corrected with the gospel. As we learned in 1 Peter, not protests in the street, but subjection to the government. And for the most part, I believe that the true church is fully engaged in that battle. And compared to the world, compared to those on, again, the so-called left, we look okay. And so what is the risk that we face? Why do I say we could be distracted? And I think something last year perfectly illustrates this issue. Very large convention of believers got together for the first time in two years. And they were running through some doctrinal issues and some very relevant doctrinal issues. And many churches like ours had come together to try and steer the ship straight, to try to make things right, to say that you don't use the means of the world to interpret the Bible. Just because the world interprets reality one way does not mean you interpret scripture that way because scripture is sufficient. But the comment that was received or given to churches like ours was very short and brief, and it was that the world is watching. And I I don't think the intent of that comment was proper. I don't think it was the way it should have been given. Um, And I think it was wrongly addressed. However, I don't think it was received as it should have been um, by those that we're often influenced by. And throughout the years over the the COVID pandemic, um, there have been words thrown around like cultural capital, um, influence, repertoire with the world, the world is watching. And the overwhelming response from believers like us has been to fire back at those things on the internet to correct those things and to speak out against those things. And the Lord has brought many to Reformed faith through that. And I don't agree with those comments, but again, I want to be introspective. And I want to hear, potentially, God's truth through the mouth of Balaam. Caiaphas, though an unbeliever, though ignorant, prophesied the Lord's will. I don't want to miss something that we could take inventory of. Because the fact is that the world is watching. Much of the focus of churches like ours has shifted toward firing back at this idea. And I fear that firing back is now the primary focus of the true church. But if we neglect our conduct and how we are to live and how we are to preach... And if we think that our conduct 
doesn't matter as long as our message is correct, I think that we're wrong. And I think that we're missing something when we read Scripture. I fear that if we miss the means by which God wants to bring the message of salvation to men, we'll end up being a stumbling block to that salvation rather than what we should be. And the passage that we're in this morning addresses that issue. So if we want to be effective in this world, as Jude says, if we want to pull men out of the fire, if we want to have error corrected in our local context, in our families, in our friendships, where we have a voice without partaking in error of a different kind, if we want to be a winsome believer, we need to hear this passage, we need to understand it, and we need to obey this passage. And Peter here is explaining what he heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, which was, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so Peter breaks this down into four parts in our passage. Our identity, our call, our instructions, and our effect. That's our identity, our call, our instructions, and our effect. If you look at verse 11, Peter first identifies his readers as beloved. That is, beloved of God. There's a special relationship that God has with Peter's readers. This is the same word used to describe the love that God has for the Son. The love that God has for us and the love we are commanded to have for one another. This kind of love, this title, identifies who Peter is writing to. And in our context, Peter is speaking to the Jewish remnant who has returned to the Lord, much like the book of Hebrews, 1 John, Jude, or James. And he calls them sojourners and exiles. The Jews were very familiar with these terms. They had been in exile for hundreds of years. And if you have an ESV and you go to chapter 1, verse 1, there's a word there, capital D, dispersion. Now, every time this word is used in Scripture, it's used to describe the Jews who had been dispersed. John Calvin said, They who think that all the godly are thus called, because they are strangers in the world and are are advancing toward the celestial country, are, must, are much mistaken. And this mistake is evident from the word dispersion, which immediately follows, for this can apply only to the Jews. They were sojourners because they had been dispersed. And it's nothing strange that he, Peter, designed this epistle more especially for the Jews, for he knew that he was appointed in a particular manner their apostle, as Paul teaches in Galatians 2.8. And along with him would be Origen, John Owen, and many others. Now amazingly, these Jews are beloved by God and in exile. They're not being judged by Peter. God has brought them to salvation in their Messiah. They need to hear this. Being in exile from the land always had negative connotations for the Jews. Even the faithful Jews had been dispersed along with the unfaithful in the Old Testament, even in Peter's day. But here, Yahweh's special message to them through Peter was beloved, even as sojourners and exiles. Fulfilling his calling, he gives them a glorious message from the Lord. You are sojourning, you are in exile, forced away from your home, but you are God's beloved. And so what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, beloved by God applies to us as well. And there's a way of thinking about passages like this that has oftentimes run about in Reformed theology and in theology since the church began. And it's this weird pinning up church versus Israel or Israel versus the Gentiles. 
But in order to understand how glorious what God is doing in our church today, I think we have to understand this correctly. Instead of saying Israel equals the church, see, the church equals the kingdom of God. And underneath that are all believers from all nations. And to see that, that this was God's plan all along and that you all are participating in that along with me and along with all other believers today. If you would turn to Isaiah 19 really quick. Many passages like these were pointed to in the New Testament to understand exactly how believing Jews related to believing Gentiles in the church. Because the Messiah had come, the king had arrived, but it became more complicated because then there was a second coming. And so in order to understand how they related, men like James pointed to passages like these. And as we read this, I want you to think like an Old Testament Jew and hear how strange this would have sounded to them. Starting in verse 19, In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Going down to verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And this is very important, verse 24 and 25. In that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. The plan of God all along was not that all the nations would become Jews. And it was not that all nations would somehow become Israel. Israel had borders. The plan of God all along was that Israel would evangelize the nations so that all nations would worship Yahweh God. And so going back to 1 Peter when we understand that what we partake in, the audience Peter was writing to, and how the church is the beginning of this promised kingdom from long ago, we understand that there is no elite in the kingdom of God. There is no Jew versus Gentile, that we have all been made partakers of the same spirit of God, and that we are all equal before him even as Gentiles. We are living in the fullness of the times, brothers and sisters. The reality is that the Jews Peter was writing to are all Christian Jews, kingdom Jews. They're the Israel of God, but they are part of something bigger than just a small nation. They're part of the kingdom of Yahweh God and His Christ. You and I are part of that same kingdom, so don't think, as you read through the Old Testament, that God's point all along was that he would save just the Jews. The point was that he would save his people who were amongst all nations. And so we are not Jews, but we are part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, along with these Jewish believers. This is not the fullness of, king, of the kingdom. As we saw in Isaiah 19, all these nations are at peace, and we don't see that yet. But as Jesus said, even in his first coming, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so it is at hand today. And so, much like these Jews in their exile, we are sojourners. We're not at home in the world, waiting for that promised land that's calling. And we are, along with them, God's beloved Take heart in Yahweh's love and eternal plan for you as a Gentile. In Christ, we are loved as sons, as God's sons. We all share in every spiritual blessing that the Lord has poured out among his people. And so we are beloved. 
in the midst of our pilgrimage. And so as beloved, as beloved sojourners, we go from our identity to our call, which is an urge to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. Peter goes on to give an urgent command to the Jews, something that they had been accustomed to, a quickening a call to wake up and understand where they were because they were in danger if they didn't see the dangers around them. And those dangers are the passions of the flesh. In chapter 4, Peter fleshes these out and he says, these are sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Paul adds to this in Galatians 5. He says, Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, your sin. In light of these, Peter commands the Jews to keep their soul on guard. Because this isn't a simple danger or a small danger to these Jews, but this is a war. The word here is not battle, but it describes a war campaign against their soul. And throughout the New Testament, any, any battle with the flesh is described as an ongoing conflict. And since I'm young and I haven't experienced war by the grace of God, I read through many men's experiences, and one common factor is they describe all of their senses being alert. Um, you see everything around you, you hear everything around you. In the midst of the chaos, things seem to slow down. Um, and, and many soldiers have described this experience as being truly alive. The ideal, they say, would be that your training would kick in as everything seems to remain slow, careful, and calculated. You don't rush through combat like they do in the movies. A lot of the time, however, at the same time that the training is supposed to kick in, they, these soldiers say that instincts often make things more chaotic. And so the risk in war is not only the training that you ignore, but the unknown. Even if you are calculated, even if you do understand everything that you could understand, there's still what you don't know. And the risk of what you don't know or what you don't calculate is death. And Peter takes this analogy of war and applies it to the soul. To us... There's an internal war campaign against your soul. Do you believe that? Are the schemes of the devil dangerous? Is Satan a threat? Do we cry out to God for help in the midst of abstaining from the flesh? Is your flesh your primary enemy? Is this war on the flesh something that you find yourself busy with? Busier than trying to correct progressives? Busier than seeing everything going on out there? And if it is, we are not at peace with our flesh. We're not living in peacetime. And the Spirit of God urges us in Scripture to understand that. Christ has won the war, but we still have a king to please and a spirit to obey. And we don't risk death because of ignorance. And we don't risk death because we're outnumbered. We have a great high priest who not only stands in heaven, but stands with us in our trial. And we have a spirit of God who through Scripture has given us all instruction perfectly. And so, as believers, we have all that we need. And in that call, we have our instructions. 
in verse 12. Peter says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. We've seen Peter explain who we are, what we're called to, and how to fulfill our call. If you have an ESV or a New American Standard Bible, the verse 11 ends with a period. Verse 12 begins with keep, and it begins with a new command. Now, I, I usually read and study with the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a newer translation. It's what Ben refers to as the LBJ version. In mine, verse 12 does not begin with a new sentence, um, and this was really messing with my sermon outline. So I, I actually contacted the translators. Um, I said, I'm not a Greek scholar. And I'm preaching this weekend, so help me. <laughs> and I believe that you deserve the best. And I didn't want to stand up here and blindly defend the ESV or the NAS or the LSB. And they got back with me. Uh, and I learned that day. <laughs> um, they pointed back to something William Tyndale said when he translated the Bible, which is that no new sentence begins in verse 12 in the Greek text. For this verse is the positive counterpart to verse 11. That means that in the Greek, everything you see in verse 12 is an explanation of how to fulfill verse 11. And why is that important? Why is it important to understand that? Instead of reading, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, keep your conduct honorable, why is it important to read it? Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct honorable. The point Peter is making is that the Jews who are in danger will wage the war on their soul, wage the war inside of them by waging it on the outside. I think oftentimes in Christian thought we think there's the soul, what goes on inside of us, and then what we do on the outside. But Peter doesn't see that here. Peter sees your sanctification as altogether. What you do is what you believe. What you say is what you think. And to us, he's saying we can't be hypocrites. And we can't expect our actions to tell a different story than our soul would. We can't expect to be holier on the inside and in our mind if we are unholy on the outside. In fact, the soul, Peter uses this word, the soul, refers to the entire person. It doesn't just refer to deep down inside of you. It's all-encompassing of who you are. Your holy thoughts will lead to holy conduct. Your unholy thoughts will lead to unholy conduct, and both are laid at the feet and fault of us. And that's exactly what Peter says in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3. The end of verse 1, he says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, that is, what you desire on the inside, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And James, writing to a similar audience in chapter 4 of his epistle, says, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? The sin on the outside? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? God doesn't see who we are as two different beings two different levels of sanctification. Some men say, I love Christ, I love Jesus, I love everything that he's done for me. But they describe themselves often as these unrepentant men. And the Bible doesn't allow for unrepentant living. Faith without works is dead, not saving, a cause for self-concern and evaluation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift of God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are saved as the gift of God, but that salvation produces good works. And then there are many like us who understand that. We know these things. We know that grace is free. 
And we know that our works follow as a result of grace. But let's not only acknowledge antinomianism in the preaching of others, but in the way that we believe right doctrine. Though we may not preach against the law of God, is the way that we preach or the way that we correct or sound the alarm against the law of God? Do we have any regard for the way that we live with right doctrine? Many men often reject Calvinism because they say Calvinists are rude. They know everything. They're jerks. And some men are babies. You, you can't say anything to some men. But other wiser and older men have a point, brothers and sisters. Just because we believe rightly does not mean we can say or teach anything we want to in whatever way that we want to. The way that we preach is part of the good works that we were made for, that we were saved for. We will struggle, we will fail, and we will sin, and our sanctification takes time. And we will never be perfect. Those are facts, biblical truths. But other biblical truths are that no believer makes a practice of sinning. No believer fails to be transformed from glory to glory. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And he not only wants to do that now, or excuse me, in eternity, but he wants to do that today, a day-by-day -day process. You can grieve the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters. We can grieve God in the way that we handle ourselves, in the way we conduct ourselves in the war, and we're in this together. And so let us fight the good fight faithfully, seeking to please our King. Paul says, crying out about his sin, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he goes on, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He condemned sin in the flesh. And listen to this. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so the way that we wage our war against our soul, the way that we abstain from fleshly lust, from sin, is by keeping our conduct honorable amongst the world. And our effect, in verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So what does Peter see as the effect of waging this war? How important is it? How important is continuing to pursue sanctification? Jesus said it this way, First, let your light shine before men. Second, in such a way. And now, as Peter explains, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what's the effect? Man's salvation is the effect. Peter tells these Jews that the way they conduct themselves will validate their message to the surrounding Gentiles. And this was God's plan for Israel all along that they would be a light to the nations, honoring Yahweh and bringing men to salvation. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, you were saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Much like the Jews in Rome. When Paul wrote Romans and he was explaining to the Jews and the Gentiles how to be the church, the Jews ran the risk of just completely forgetting that they were called to a standard because the standard was no longer the law of Moses. And the Gentiles they were surrounded by never had any experience of obeying the law. 
So it would have been much easier to just forsake holiness altogether. And outside the church, with no accountability to keep even the law of Christ, it would have been even more tempting to engage in fleshly deeds, especially in light of how hated Jews were by Gentiles. Calvin again says the Jews were not only hated everywhere, but were almost abhorred. That is disgusting to the Jews. Have we not seen that in history? In their day, these Jews would have thought Gentiles don't care if I get drunk. They don't care if I sleep around. They don't care if I act like them. The only people who care are the church. So what matters what I do among the Gentiles? In fact, why not relieve some of this hatred and some of this persecution? Why not bow the knee to Caesar with them so long as I confess God? I might even get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And Peter's response is, their salvation is what matters. On top of that, if your soul is set on the flesh, you won't be able to share the gospel. You won't have an opportunity to share the gospel They won't be able to maintain good conduct among the Gentiles because if they don't wage the war inside of themselves, if they have no desire to do that, they will not do it among the Gentiles. And hearts will be hardened starting with their own. You see, we give unbelievers the gospel in our preaching, but we also have to give them a reason to believe the gospel. We aren't running around doing miracles anymore. And so what's the sign? What validates the effect of the gospel? What says to unbelievers, why should I come? What's so different about you? And many men will offer the gospel and say, it'll fix all of your problems, and it'll make life a lot easier. But Peter's admonition is that life in Christ is a war. And many men... I believe, are taken aback by how difficult it is to be obedient to Christ. Because they heard the message, if you come to Jesus, all your problems will just go away. Because the point that Peter is trying to make is that life in Christ is life at war with sin. What makes our message convicting? What makes our message potent? not just correct, being at war with our flesh, taking the log out of our own eye, not just in our interactions with one another here, but being sure that we're doing it out there. Many churchmen today are going after the world and are confusing the message of the gospel. And compared to the martyrs, it's pitiful. When we look at our spiritual heritage, When we look at men like John Rogers, who died, who was burned to death in front of his children for opposing transubstantiation, which doesn't say, don't believe in Jesus Christ. The implications of it undermine belief in Jesus Christ. And when you compare a man who died for implications that undermine the gospel to men today who can't stand for the explicit gospel at all, it's pitiful. Apologetics removed from the Bible, politics removed from the Bible, science engaging with the culture, softening the edges of the gospel, all of these prove to be vanity, sinful, and destructive. Keeping Agag around because he doesn't seem so harmful. Killing Uriah so it doesn't seem so bad that you slept with Bathsheba tools of the enemy, and schemes of the devil. But how much more destructive that we let the sin in our own heart fester. What good was Naaman to the military if Elijah first didn't take away his leprosy? What praise would have come to Yahweh from the queen of Sheba if Solomon's kingdom was not at first dedicated to the Lord? And what good is the church of Jesus Christ if we engage the world the same way they engage us? 
It seems that many of these ideologies, these foes propagated by deceived men, are certainly wrong and deserving of a faithful reply. But many of the replies they receive only prove the point that they were ignorantly trying to make. Replies in unholy anger, arrogance, pride, unbiblically gone about, will say to them that we do not understand that the world is watching. So it will say to the world, watch me be like you. It will say to one another, it's okay to be like the world. And much more importantly, it will say to our God that we don't care that the world is watching. Souls are at stake in this. Unbelievers aren't just in danger of their unbelief, but our neglect of sanctification. What effect has light if it only shines as brightly as the darkness? And as, as good Calvinists, right? You may be thinking, I'm not so sure that our lives, the way that we live, affects the potency of our message that much. At least not as much as it sounds. So I just want you to hear these. And first in 1 Peter, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that is the gospel, if any of them are unbelieving, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. They may be brought to Christ, brought to the message, because of the life of the messenger. In 3.14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Go down to verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That is our message. That is what we preach. But he goes on, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage not your bad conduct, your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And I won't preach Ben's message for him next week, but if you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, all of these qualities of life and the way that we are to live in the full knowledge of Christ are explained. And in verse 8, Peter says, For if these things, these qualities of life, how you live are yours and are increasing, if we are growing in our sanctification, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just listen as I, I go through others from the New Testament. Paul says, We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be all means save some. I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is addressing a similar question that Peter addressed in chapter 3. If a believing husband has an unbelieving wife, should he leave? And vice versa. But he says they shouldn't so long as the other partner is willing to stay. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul goes on in Thessalonians, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 1 Timothy 4, in instructions to an elder, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And the book of Titus in general is written to a lazy, gluttonous, lying culture who rejects God. And if you compared it to our day and to the way many men respond to that culture that we live in, you would think, I wonder what Paul told them to say. But Paul's charge to them is not what to say, but how to live and how to live rightly before the Lord. He calls them to adorn the gospel of God. 
to be like the crown that the crown jewel of the gospel sits in. That's not a profession. That's not just appreciation. That is saving faith that believes the gospel and lives as if you believe the gospel. And I have at least 35 more, but I'm not going to go through them. Because we don't save anybody. That would add to the gospel. We have no power in our flesh to save any soul, including our own. But the whole entire scripture testifies that there's no such thing as an effective messenger that is unholy and unrepentant, that acts just like the darkness. That would be like a lamp designed to lower a light, which would not be a lamp, but a shovel. And we can't expect to be any effect in this world without first setting ourselves apart to godly living because of our appreciation for what Christ has done in our heart. Amen. We will not draw men to Christ, as he said, in such a way that causes them to glorify God if we act just like them. Even if our message is right, there's no place in the Bible that encourages that message by itself. In the midst of all the craziness and all the capitulation by churchmen today, we not only need to understand the truth, but we need to live like we believe it. We can't just preach and expose error, but we need to be preoccupied and obsessed with our own sanctification. Then it won't matter so much what's going on on the outside. Because our focus will be right here, starting with us, and we know that we'll be living rightly before a holy God. And we will trust Him with the result of that. The ignorance of foolish men, as Peter says, will be put to shame by our good deeds. There's an urgent need for the elders to warn the flock. But that warning is not removed from the elders and the flock imitating Christ in all things. Do you live like that? Do we live at war with our flesh? Do you live understanding that it will affect your effect when you witness? The world needs, especially today, churches that understand this. Statesboro, Georgia needs Sovereign Grace Church to understand that we ought to be preoccupied with our sanctification. By this, the same reformation that's been going on will continue. By this, this Jenga tower will be able to be rearranged at where it needs to be. And by this, men will be saved. This gospel that we believe, sovereign grace, that God is holy, that we are fallen in sin, that God has to punish sin because he's holy. That God has chosen men for salvation and treated his son on the cross guilty in their place. That though their sins are like scarlet, they would be made white as snow by the blood of their Savior. That Jesus died for his own. That he raised himself from the grave and offered up himself to the Father and is now seated at his right hand interceding for us and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that gospel, people of God? The wondrous power of God to save, this message that we proclaim, the wonderful plan that Yahweh God had not only for the Jews, but for all sitting here today, for all men, that all men would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that his elect would believe that gospel. That we, as Paul says in Titus, after preaching the gospel, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. For those of us who do believe that, just as powerful as the gospel is the Spirit of God in you, God himself indwelling you, the same Spirit that opened your eyes is in you to bring you into the likeness of Christ day by day. And if we aim to do this, by the Spirit of God, put the flesh to death. Paul expected men to come to Christ. Do we expect that? Do we expect men to be affected by our holy living before God? God is sovereign, but in His sovereignty He has ordained the means by which He plans to bring salvation about. Holy, set apart to Him, filled with the Spirit, obedient to Christ, slaves who preach the gospel and live in such a way that proclaims it. We're in the world, but not of the world. And while in the world, while in Statesboro, Georgia, Sovereign Grace Church is the aroma of Christ. From life to life for the elect, and from death to death for the reprobate. So let us encourage each other in this fight. Let us know each other enough to know our weaknesses, to know what wars against our soul, so that we wouldn't stand alone. Let us never give up on our sanctification, no matter how long we've been in the fight. Because souls depend on that war. We're living in the fullness of the times, and this is how we live in the kingdom of God. This is what Peter commands us to do. So therefore, beloved of God, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul by keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen.